0: Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of new thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool because you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed. So get informed.
1: Who's that pod? It's the leftist lit pod. Dick, duck, paddywhack. Give the cast a book. Welcome back to Getting Informed, the leftist lit podcast. I am your one of your hosts, Allison Gropey slash Al Gropey. She, her, hers. And my point of pride today is that I finished BoJack Horseman without crying.
0: With me <laughs> is blue-shirted mustache man and fellow host... Colin Orton, he, him, his. And uh, I did not bring any knives to any school board meetings, unlike allegedly Representative Madison Cawthorn, who may have brought two against uh, uh, North Carolina state law. (laughs) With us is. Oh, Colin, why'd you have to hit me with that right before I had to say my name?
2: Uh, My name is Max Strower, he, him, his. Uh, I'm jumping on the bandwagon of having also not brought weapons to a school board meeting, but holy shit. Did that take me off guard? Um, uh, You know what? Point of pride. Uh, My state uh, had the first uh, same-sex wedding of a governor over the last weekend. Yeah. Uh, State of Colorado, Jared Polis married... I think it's Marlon Reese, now Marlon Polis, maybe? We'll find out. But um they are now uh uh they're now married as opposed to uh I'm guessing engaged beforehand.
0: <laughs> yeah, That's you know, how it
2: works. Yeah. Usually the progression.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Good for
2: Colorado. Yeah.
0: I wish
1: them a happy marriage. We are back with Rosa reform Reformer Revolution, and hopefully we are going to cover three sections today, whereas... Given that we got a little, little
0: sidetracked.
1: To, yeah, we've managed to cover solidly one section an episode.
0: And it was the section from last week that we that were supposed missed. to cover.
1: So... I, forgive me if I, like, sound like a complete hard-ass in trying to keep us to the text this time.
0: Better um be a hard-ass than a soft... Front? Like... No. No? <laughs> <laughs> Alright.
1: Today we're going to ideally Man, cover capitalism in this... Mm-hmm. Today, we're going to try and cover capitalism in the state, the general nature of reformism and economic development and socialism.
0: We'll see if we actually get there. I have nine pages of notes. Oh, no. <laughs> How? I only have three. Because I have a lot of quotes.
1: Uh, that reminds me, we didn't say a single quote in the last episode. <laughs> okay. But I had some we, set aside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we talked about last week, last episode, it was literally 10 minutes for us. Uh, was how social reforms will not actually... Like, the amelioration of capitalism will not lead to a better society. We debated whether or not it would, whether or not it could. Talked about the Baltic states a bit. Um, but Nordic states. Forgive me. Geography is my weak point. But we're picking it up this week with capitalism and the state, which discusses the second condition of the expropriation by stages that Bernstein suggests is like, gonna make capitalism good enough to live in for the working class. He calls it the evolution of the state in society. This is essentially social reforms. While the intervention of of labor movements, like, you know, the labor movement, was seen by the socialist movement as the first positive step towards reorienting society in the favor of the proletariat rather than the bourgeoisie, A thing that Luxembourg really wants us to remember is that labor movements are useful to the bourgeoisie in that they preserve capitalism. Eventually, bourgeoisie interests and the interests of economic progress do clash. But in that case, while society tries to defend bourgeoisie interests, their interests are so intertwined with capitalist interests that capitalist interests prevail. And she gives two main examples, tariff barriers and militarism. Shall we dive in?
0: I have I have here a couple of quotes. All right, bitch, give me. Which one would we rather hear first? Cuz I I just like copy-pasted huge sections of this because it's so just so uh poignant to me. Um so I'm just going to start rattling. chronologically tariff barriers goes first. Oh yeah. I'm just going to read uh <clears throat> this is part of the intro. The state becomes capitalist with the political victory of the bourgeoisie. Capitalist development modifies essentially the nature of the state, widening its sphere of action, constantly imposing on it new functions, especially those affecting economic life, making more and more necessary its intervention and control in society. In this sense, capitalist development prepares little by little the future fusion of the state into society. It prepares, so to say, the return of the function of the state to society. Following uh, this line of thought, one can speak of an evolution of the capitalist state into society. And it's undoubtedly what Marx had in mind when he referred to labor legislation as the first conscious intervention of society into into the vital social process, a phase upon which Bernstein leans heavily. But on the other hand, the same capitalist development realizes another transformation in the nature of the state. The present state is, first of all, an organization of the ruling class. It assumes functions favoring social developments specifically because, and in a measure that, these interests and social developments coincide in a general fashion with the interests of the dominant class. Labor legislation is enacted in as much, uh, I'm sorry, labor legislation is enacted as much in the immediate interest of the capitalist class as in the interest of society in general. But this harmony endures only up to a certain point of capitalist development. When the capitalist development has reached a certain level, the interests of the bourgeoisie as a class and the needs of the economic progress begin to clash, even in a capitalist sense. We believe that this phase has already begun. It shows itself in two extremely important phenomena of contemporary social life. On one hand, the policy of tariff barriers, and on the other, militarism. These two phenomena have played an indispensable, and in that sense, a progressive and revolutionary role in the history of capitalism. Period. Without tariff protection, the, the development of large industry would have been impossible in several countries, but now the situation is different. Essentially, the state works to serve the ruling class, and the ruling class's interests, which are preserved by the state, often run, count, uh, run, run counter to the desire of the state to maintain itself, as we have seen in modern America with people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk literally receiving money from the government instead of paying fucking taxes. And so we see a sort of oligarchy forming separate to the state, the interests of which run directly counter to the state. That's it. That's the end of my tirade. All right, I'm going to jump in
2: there. Um, The first quote that I had pulled was, I think, literally the next sentence, which was, uh, at present, protection does not serve so much to develop young industry as to maintain artificial, artificially certain aged forms of production. I mean, coal. good God. Coal, 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 coal. Um, we have to
0: protect the miners, the coal yeah. miners.
2: Um, I mean, yeah, brilliant. Oil? It's, yeah. Straight ups?
0: Natural gas is a beautiful explanation of that. It literally should have been phased out 50 years ago, but because the power of the state is lined up behind it, even to the extent that National Guard were prepared to use live ammunition on water protectors at Standing Rock, it still exists.
2: Yeah. If you don't mind me uh, using a fun, silly, out of the philosophical quote in here, um, the it assumes functions favoring social development specifically because and in the measure that these interests and social developments coincide in a general fashion with the interests of the dominant class gave me big uh laws or threats made by the dominant mm-hmm. socioeconomic ethnic group in a given nation it's bas- it's just a promise of violence that's enacted and police are basically an occupying army uh quote I have that used cool again. that <laughs>
1: exact same
2: quote on this podcast before <laughs> because it's perfect and I love it. And thank you. And he's right. I was <laughs> sitting there reading that going, God, this is just the philosophical Bud Cubby quote uh, put in a way that <laughs> I need to use my brain to think about instead of just agreeing with <laughs> the Chad Bud Cubby. Oh yeah.
1: One example of how these tariff protections that she uses that she talks about have like developed to the point where they are no longer meant to protect younger industries or like to I, my shoddy example was like to get people to buy american made cars. like is we see One example of that is that at the moment she was writing, It was agriculture, not industry that was playing the biggest role in making tariffs and like enforcing tariffs, which was truly more about expressing the feudal interests of the nation through capital, making it harder to. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but tariffs mean that it makes it harder to buy things locally. It's harder to get food and natural products in foreign countries where they need the imports. Rather than. Uh, I, have, no. I have
0: a quote that will. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You do it. You do it.
0: Quote While industry does not need tariff barriers for its development, the entrepreneurs need tariffs to protect their markets. This signifies that at present, tariffs no longer serve as a means of protecting a developing capitalist section against a more advanced section. They are now the arm of one national group of capitalists against another group.
1: I had that same quote
0: pulled. I don't know why I didn't buy American cars, motherfucker. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, just chugging my right along. The next example she goes into is militarism. And my first note on this is wars are about capitalism. Send tweet.
2: War, uh, War is a racket
1: by
0: Smedley Butler.
1: Mm-hmm. And capitalism likes wars because one, they defend quote, national interests Two, they allow for greater investment in industrialization, war industries, obviously, and three, they injure disproportionately the working classes of the nations they affect, not the ruling classes. It's another example of class domination.
0: I literally, the next paragraph, I also have bold. Do you mind if I uh, do another long read? <laughs> give it, give it to me. In the clash between capitalist development and the interest of the dominant class, the state takes a position alongside of the latter. Its policy, like that of the bourgeoisie, comes into conflict with social development. It thus loses more and more of its character as a representative of the whole society and is transformed at the same rate into a pure class state. Or, to speak more exactly, these two qualities distinguish themselves more from each other and find themselves in a contradictory relation to the very nature of the state. This contradiction becomes progressively sharper. For the one hand, we have the growth of the functions of a general interest on the part of the state, its intervention in social life, its control over society, that's control with quotes around it, But on the other hand, its class character obliges the state to move the pivot of its activity and its means of coercion more and more into domains which are useful only to the class character of the bourgeoisie and have for society as a whole a negative importance, as is the case for militarism and tariff and colonial policies. Moreover, the social control exercised by this state is at the same time penetrated and dominated by its class character. See how labor legislation is applied in all countries. And one of the things that really struck me about this is I was having a conversation the other day with some friends and we were talking about how ultimately the capitalists do not differentiate between fascism and sort of laissez-faire bourgeois democracy. They don't affect the bottom line and business proceeds for the bourgeoisie as usual it is only for people who would suffer at the hands of a more dictatorial government system that that government system rankles essentially and you know the group of people that suffers widens under a more totalitarian regime but for capitalists not a lot changes
1: And the reason that she brings up, I'm sorry, Max,
0: were you about to say something? No,
1: no,
2: no, 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 please.
1: The reason she brings up tariff barriers and militarism as an example of the way that social reforms will be ineffective against a capitalist society is precisely because of what you mentioned in that, and I hate to, I don't hate to use this example, but like, uh, I know Max's political affiliation, so I don't want to say it. I think of the modern democratic party in that it presents itself as the party of social reform as the party trying to make progress but in the end uh, there's the here i have a the state becomes less and less representative of the whole society the more it tries to protect state interests it's contradictory to social progress uh quote I here would, i would these, define
0: the modern oh go for it, please
1: the extension of democracy, which Bernstein sees as a means of realizing socialism by degrees, does not contradict, but on the contrary, corresponds perfectly to the transformation realized in the nature of the state. The, de- the democratic forms of political life are without a question a phenomenon expressing clearly the evolution of the state and society.
0: I would argue that the platform of the like power structures of the Democratic Party, you know, the the like established Democratic Party, You know, the 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 mansion I mansion is more of a conservative Democrat, but like, you know, most the 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 major pyramid of the Democratic Party, I would argue, is a conservative party. They are concerned largely with not moving to the left, but also not moving to the right, as opposed to the openly reactionary Republican Party who are attempting to drag America as far right as possible. Max, Mm -hmm. what were you going to say? i was just gonna i mean
2: I, I should make sure i highlight here please don't ever feel bad about talking the democratic party in front of me um like my okay. like king i <laughs> i am a member of the party i am not it's herald you know the, yeah, the, not the mascot no the, the thing that we've got to recognize also is that in the context of political parties the american democratic party is six European parties. Um, The American Republican Party is four European parties, something like that. Yeah, in a multi-party state,
0: these are not existing.
2: Yeah. um, We really shouldn't be in the same political party as Joe Manchin. Um, (laughs) Practicality dictates that we are. Um,
0: Remember when AOC got flack for saying that she and Nancy Pelosi in a normal system would not be in the same party, despite the fact that that's objectively true?
2: Well, in... Same thing is true, just, I mean, <laughs> I'm very glad that Joe Manchin got elected, because he is far to the left of who the normal representative of his state is. Um, but we are not members of the same political party, structurally. Um, internationally, I guess I'll say. Um, Ideologically, even. Yeah, did somebody already quote um, in this society the representative institutions democratic in form are in content the instruments of the interests of the ruling class? I, I think, think so. But you I, just said I, it.
0: So, yeah, we're I'm good. Sure. We have.
2: scooping that there, but uh, it, I apologize if I stole that from one of you guys after you already Literally said
0: it. Literally say quotes multiple times. It's fine. <laughs>
2: <Like>. <laughs> um, that one stu- stood out to me a lot uh, cuz that is a lot of where, uh, the, the contentions I have with my political party come out to or come out in full form. If we look at why, for instance, I can't remember what bill it was, but, uh, there was a recent healthcare bill that was tanked by, um, not even moderate, just Democrats in Congress, um, that, uh, the, some total of the Democrats who tanked, or who tanked this bill um, had received, I think it was twenty million dollars in contributions from big pharma over the last few elections. Oh um, my god! Yeah, and the this is a group that trying to think of who the most extreme members of them are, but aren't representing swing districts. You know, um, yeah. I can uh, I can stand by saying that. Joe Manchin is a good force to have in the party because I can recognize that the person who replaces Joe Manchin is Shelley Moore Capito, is uh, Jim Justice in uh, West Virginia. They're, you know, standing next to Trump on the MAGA rallies. Like, Ugh. these are far worse scenarios. Um, when we look at, God, is his name Ed Chase? Uh, he's Hawaii's. 1st or 2nd congressional district representative he's sitting right with that moderate wing of the party that is or he's sitting right with that uh, centrist wing of the party that is stalling action and Mm. he's representing the fucking state of Hawaii yeah (laughs) Um, a Republican hasn't been elected out of that state in a normal election in a good long while Um, there is no reason for him to stand in the way aside from Sheerly protecting the class, and that's a bunch of it Mm -hmm. To that point, all that is to say, don't please cut down the party. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, on a similar, just moving along, she does take this moment to speak out against parliamentarism as a whole. Yeah, as a specific form of a bourgeois class state that quote helps to ripen and develop the existing antagonisms of capitalism.
0: I have a quote. Is it the lemonade quote? is um, it the lemonade quote yes can
1: i do the lemonade quote Yeah,
0: i'll let you do the lemonade quote um i have i have here a, I'll, I'll read this this quote and then we can, can round absolutely the do the uh the 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 lemonade quote
1: okay go ahead <laughs>
0: um this one's another long one i'm so sorry Conrad Schmidt declares that the conquest of a social democratic majority in parliament leads directly to the gradual socialization of society. Now, the democratic forms of political life are without a question a phenomenon expressing clearly the evolution of the state in society. They constitute to that extent a move towards socialist transformation. But the conflict within the capitalist state, as described above, manifests itself even more emphatically in modern parliamentarianism. Indeed, in accordance with its form, Parliamentarianism serves to express, within the organization of the state, the interests of the whole society. But what parliamentarianism expresses here is capitalist society. That is to say, a society in which capitalists' uh, interests predominate. In this society, the repressive institutions, democratic in form, are in content the instruments of the interests of the ruling class. This manifests itself in a tangible fashion in the fact that as soon as democracy shows the tendency to negate its class character and become transformed into an instrument of real Of the real interests of the population the democratic forms are sacrificed by the bourgeoisie and by its state representatives that is why the idea of the conquest of a parliamentary reformist majority is a calculation which entirely in the spirit of bourgeois liberalism preoccupies itself only with one side the formal side of democracy but does not take into account the other side its real content all in all, parliamentarism is not uh, parliamentarianism. Pardon me, is not a directly socialist element impregnating gradually the whole of a capitalist society. It is, on the contrary, a specific form of bourgeois class state helping to ripen and develop the existing antagonisms of the state.
1: Mm-hmm. Basically, then, go ahead.
0: Oh, um, the theory of the gradual. Introduction of socialism proposes progressive reform of capitalist property and the capitalist state in the direction of socialism, but in consequence of the objective laws existing of existing society, one and the other develop in the precisely opposite direction. Uh, The process of production is increasingly socialized and state intervention, the control of the state over the process of production is extended. At the same time, private property becomes more and more the form of open capitalist exploitation of the labor of others and state control is penetrated with the exclusive interests of the role of the ruling class cops being used to break strikes. The state, state, that is to say, the political organization of capitalism and the property relations, that is to say, the juridical organization of capitalism becomes more capitalist and not more socialist, opposing to the theory of progressive introduction of socialism in two insurmountable difficulties.
1: Which we did discuss during our uh, section on discipline and punish the juridical system protecting the interests of the state and then just to round out this section she finishes with a fucking hilarious like anecdote i guess uh what's the word analogy um that had me rolling uh she says quote Furrier's scheme of changing by means of a system of phalansteries, the water of all the seas into tasty lemonade was surely a fantastic idea. But Bernstein proposing to change the sea of capitalist bitterness into a sea of socialist sweetness by progressively pouring it into bottles of social reformist lemonade presents an idea that is merely more insipid, but no less fantastic." I'm like, girl, girl dunk on him holy shit it made me giggle it's just calling him delusional anywho it's a phenomenal quote (laughs) oh yeah and I don't know if we'll get to that section today but the final section of this three section part that we were supposed to talk about is literally just her calling him delusional
2: like 16 different ways to sunday Um, if I could jump back just a second, um, the other thing that popped into my head was, uh, at the end of the, of one of the quotes that you read, the all in all parliamentarism is not a directly socialist element, impregnating gradually the whole capitalist society. It is on the contrary, a specific form of the bourgeois state or class state helping to ripen and develop the existing antagonisms of capitalism, kind of returning to the, thing we were discussing earlier, the real world example that was popping into my head really actively is the, um, debate around the SALT taxes that are being discussed right now. So for anyone who is not intimately familiar with SALT, uh, it stands for state and local tax reduction or deduction. Um, and it's basically a way for you to remove the, uh, higher costs of, local taxation from your federal taxes um it's a really i'm gonna go with the word sneaky way of higher taxed areas like new york new jersey california um to kind of pass part of their tax burden off onto the federal government and it's the way that a lot of wealthier folks in those areas are to some level skirting tax laws in a very legal way maintained by uh the good old Democratic representatives from those areas. It's a trip and a half.
0: I'd never heard of that. So that's that's fascinating.
2: Yeah, it was one of the few portions of the um, uh, 2017, 2018 GOP tax bill that might have actually been good. They tried to repeal the SALT taxes. A lot of the uh, demand, or some of the demands of centrist House members right now to for the passage of the, like, Three point five trillion dollar bill that's coming up uh, are the re-inclusion of the salt tax reductions. Mm. So, <laughs> mm. fight <the> fight. <laughs>
1: fucking tasty. Give me that salt on my tongue. Except no, don't do that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you for that real world example. Very poignant. Uh, <laughs> if we can move on to the general nature of reformism, basically. So the last two sections we discussed through the previous episode and this one were how social reform, both social reforms and like these amenable, these things that Bernstein thinks could be amended, amended to suiting socialism don't work. Um so this section, the general nature of reformism, is like, so how would Bernstein's theory of reformism work in practice? And the first thing that uh, Luxembourg brings up is that the SDP's work at that time consisted of trade union work, agitation of social reforms, and the democratization of the existing political institutions. Bernstein's work was no different in the what, but different in the how, because as we discussed in the earlier sections, he did not believe that capitalism was working its way towards destruction. And so the whole end goal of these social reforms and trade union work that the SDP was doing didn't matter to him. His work was carried on not to further prepare the proletariat for revolution, but for the immediate ends of the work. It was all just amelioration. And on the note of that, preparing the proletariat for revolution. Something that she brings up in this section and the next is that socialism is fully aware that social reforms that they try to implement and that the work of labor unions sort of represent empty promises. The goal is that after enacting all of these reforms and like trying to make things better, The proletariat will reach a point where they realize that all of this reform is useless in the face of the march of capitalism. So part of the goal of social reforms is not just to make things temporarily better for the working class, but to show them that no amount of reform will lead to, like, will be perfect. And he basically just rejects that theory of disillusionment, which is proven which is pretty shown that like you know after amount of social reforms that don't end up causing any real change people get disillusioned his goal is no 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 we'll just keep doing oh, it
0: oh god what does he say he says um basically that like a hungry like a person once they've had a taste cannot be satisfied or like will develop a hunger that cannot be quenched yeah. something
1: I don't know if that was like Schmidt that. or Bernstein
0: but yeah but that's the idea is like, no, no, they won't get burnout, out. You fool.
1: But we've like see burnout everywhere.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not like a, a widely, uh, noted phenomenon or anything. No, 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 no. Max, are you going to say something?
2: Yeah. I'm trying to find the quote that I was, or that I had highlighted. Um, I may not be able to find it though. Um, uh, Oh, um, for each step forward reaches beyond the the given immediate aim and the socialist goal is implied as a tendency in the supposed advance. Um, uh, the final, sorry. Um, all, all this passage kind of reminded me of was uh, the action of firing a bow, uh, a bow and arrow. Um, it reminded me a lot of like the suppression that were, or that, capitalism is putting on people is akin to the tension created when you draw back a bow um, and revolution would be the act of firing the arrow. The argument of Bernstein is that we can slowly but surely lessen the tension and just yeah. continually fight to keep that but or keep that arrow at rest. But I think the recognition of, um, Luxembourg here is that as long as the bow is notched in the arrow, it's going to be fired at some point.
0: Yo, uh, I love really, that. Especially because capitalism, like, capitalism like a bow is designed to have tension. Yeah. Like, it is designed around tension. Funnily enough, actually, uh, just a fun fact about uh, archery. <laughs> uh, 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 a common uh, anachronism that you will see in movies is the use of the word fire, when referring to uh, an arrow being launched out of a bow because uh, the term fire uh, was not commonly applied to ranged weapons until after the introduction of gunpowder into common military use. Um, the, the term, like the command would be either loose or release generally, uh, something along those lines. Um, fire wouldn't be used until um, guns became commonplace. Makes sense because with a matchlock weapon, you literally have to put a match into a hole in the top of the barrel <laughs> of your gun. Hence, fire. You have to literally just.
1: <laughs> what does it mean then when Bottom in
0: *Midsummer Night's Dream* says "hold and cut bowstrings"? So, when when you would be traveling around with a bow, generally you wouldn't travel with it strung. Ah, interesting. You would string the bow in preparation for use. Really. Um, as far as I know that I could be wrong, but that is, uh, I like, I think that's the case is you would literally, you would string the bow. And then, so uh hold and cut bowstrings strings isn't just, all right, boys, drop your fucking weapons. Like it's, let's cut the bowstrings, strings. You're not going to need it.
1: Hmm. Getting informed Shakespeare facts and archery facts. Uh, just so say,
2: so I was whipping out the Shakespeare. <laughs> Oh, I I found the quote you were referencing earlier, by the way, the uh, Conrad Schmidt simply falls back on the idea that in apparently mechanical movement, one started cannot stop uh, by itself because one's appetite grows with the eating and the working class will not supposedly content itself with reforms till the final socialist transformation is realized.
0: Mm. The appetite not stop with the eating. Me what too. A, what a bizarre way of of uh, phrasing that.
1: My appetite don't stop when I'm full. There's always room for ice cream in the cracks. Um, <laughs> to bring it back, so as we've said, the SDP is aware that social reform represents sort of a series of empty promises, um, and she has this quote in response to Bernstein, like claiming that you can just ameliorate and ameliorate and ameliorate. As soon as immediate results become the principal aim of our activity, the clear-cut, irreconcilable point of view, which has meaning only insofar as it proposes to win power, will be found more and more inconvenient. The direct consequence of this will be the adoption by the party of a policy of compensation, a policy of political trading, and an attitude of diffident, diplomatic conciliation. But this attitude cannot be continued for a long time. Since the social reforms can only offer an empty promise, the logical consequence of such a program must necessarily be disillusionment. Just a fancy way of rephrasing what we've said here, the bowstring analogy, which
0: pretty fucking, yeah, that was fucking like that was, that was cool, Max. That was pretty sick. <laughs> Thank you.
1: That was baller as hell um so and she also points out and this goes into like the whole section after this is just her dunking on bernstein as we've said but this is the first point she points out you do realize you should not be a member of the socialist party with these views she points out that bernstein's viewpoint is like that we can just keep attenuating crises that's a viewpoint that in in intends to prevent the collapse of communism and weird to see as anything but a pro-capitalist stance. She also points out the similarity between his view of socialism and the views of any individual capitalist towards capitalism. Uh, Quote, the isolated capitalist sees each organic part of the whole of our economy as an independent entity. He sees them as they act on him, the single capitalist. He therefore considers these facts to be simple derangements of simple means of adaptation, which are direct things that Bernstein has called elements of capitalism. Capitalism. For the isolated capitalist, it is true. Crises are simple derangements. The cessation of crises accords him a longer existence. As far as he is concerned, credit is only a means of adapting his insufficient productive resources to the needs of the market. And it seems to him that the cartel of which he becomes a member really does suppress industrial anarchy, which is just her saying, you are a capitalist. Look at yourself.
0: She really hits the nail on the head with the way that the the U.S. is now because it's almost like capitalism functions the same way, regardless of the technology at play.
1: Mm.
0: Um, In the unhindered advance of capitalist production lurks a threat to capitalism that is much greater than crises. It is the threat of the constant fall of the rate of profit, resulting not only from the contradiction between production and exchange, but from the growth of the productivity of labor itself. The fall in the rate of profit has the extremely dangerous tendency of rendering impossible any enterprise for small and middle-sized capitals. It thus limits new formation and therefore the extension of placements of capital. Basically, we have seen uh, with our sort of economic crash and the devouring of the middle class, we are seeing sort of the devouring of small capitalists by huge ones to the extent now that you know, we live, especially in COVID, our our small capitalists and our middle capitalists have next to no power. The petit bourgeois is almost entirely subsumed by uh, the great shark of, you know, the, the big Bezos man. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, limiting new formation and therefore the extensions of placements of capital. There isn't anywhere to put your money Except in other enormous fucking firms, which then creates a separate economy of enormous fucking corporations trading the same million dollars back and forth.
1: On that note, I think that slides perfectly into the way she starts to critique his scientific arguments in the next section. Mm-hmm. And if y'all are willing to chug through this with me, I yep. do think we can do this section in yep.
0: like 10 minutes. Uh, you will have to take the lead because uh, I saw a bunch of numbers and my brain exploded, but... I, I, I should also say that this next section was the point where my brain fully
2: said, <laughs> um, so I... We'll uh,
0: be letting you take the lead on this one. Oh, glorious, oh, glorious philosophist, lover of wisdom, guide us through (laughs) the economic analysis.
1: I got you. The the philosophist pulls out their long opium pipe like the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland and goes, fucking bet. So with this whole section is just her finally getting to, rather than critiquing the ideological basis of his arguments, critiquing the actual, like, information that he uses to support his arguments. First of all, he uses statistics, or tries to use statistics, to prove that capitalism is still growing and not on the verge of collapse, but he used the entirely wrong set of statistics to do My so. My king. mm mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in an earlier work, I don't remember what it was because I didn't pull the quote, but apparently he just used, like, the different... Yeah, he used the concentration of what a concentration of occupation statistics, which does which was showing that you know more people are working in certain areas or not, which doesn't prove anything about the collapse of society or lack thereof. In the most recent work, which is the one that she is currently critiquing, he tried to point to an increased number of shareholders as both capitalist growth and an increasing of socialization in the economy. But the actual capital that they were shareholding over was significantly decreased. I think it went from 10 million to under, to 1.7 million or under 1 million in a span of 10 years. And she points this out. And the shareholders that she, he's talking about are holding stakes in increasingly smaller and smaller businesses. And holding a share in a small business does not socialize that business It just creates a new capitalist entity. I have a quote here. What is the meaning, therefore, of the statistics cited by Bernstein according to which an ever greater number of shareholders participate in capitalist enterprise? These statistics demonstrate precisely the following. At present, a capitalist enterprise does not correspond, as before, to a single proprietor of capital, but to a number of capitalists. While this sort of, quote unquote, socializes the enterprise, the production, that enterprise still acts towards the interests of capitalism. and. The, one of the problems with Bernstein's like viewpoint is that he sees capitalists as individual people owning things. So he's like, oh, shareholders, a lot of people putting stake in something, that's socialism. When, no.
0: This man was in the socialist party.
1: And had no idea what socialism
0: was. A capital- the man was crushing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, hey, they liked his views enough to eventually murder Rosa Luxemburg. Um Remember, she was assassinated by the SDP after they abandoned the interests of the working class for revisionists. But yeah, capitalists are not necessarily always individual people. A group of shareholders represent one capitalist entity. Where Bernstein sees the dispersion of capital, sees shareholding as a dispersion of capital rather than a concentration of capital because he's thinking of capital as a physical unit. He's thinking about dollars which is not what Capital is, if you've ever read the Communist Manifesto or Capital, which he should have been reading if he was in the Socialist Party. Nah, when, fuck and it. Basically, this whole section is her just pointing out ways in which he doesn't see the bigger picture of what socialism is. First, I have several examples I'm just gonna list, I'm just gonna run through. First of all, he can only see the little anarchies of small capitalism, not the way in which anarchy is inherent to capitalism as a whole. He, like, only this,
0: sees... Small, go ahead. This is the anarchy of the market that she discussed, and not anarchism, the political yeah. ideology. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, also, let me fucking find my place. He only sees the capitalist development of countries against each other, not within themselves. At one point in his text, he compares countries capitalist countries and their rate of growth and their rate of employment but he never realizes that there's capitalism going on within those countries that is like he doesn't talk at all about the way that the countries interact within themselves he only talks about them in competition with each other third he this is the most like cogent one that i thought like the most like simple explanation of his ideology He doesn't see socialism as a means of abolishing capital, but as a means of making the poor rich.
0: Brilliant. A real brain genius.
1: And finally, and then Um, I let you guys speak. I'm so sorry, Max. I got to do this. Um, No, no, no. go, go, go. He just blatantly doesn't understand Marx's labor theory of value, which is the cornerstone of the Socialist Party.
0: It's square one. It
1: really is he sees the labor theory of value as an abstraction or a theoretical when the labor theory of value is just that the value of your labor is represented by money. It's physical.
0: Well, (laughs) Well, I think there's the sub, there's the, uh, the, the subcategory of it, which is the, the Marxist labor theory of value applying to, you know, the, the, the famous, what is it? Allegory of the chair, analogy of the chair where, um, The excess value of the worker is the profits that are taken by uh, management and corporate, essentially, that the owners of the means of production extract value from said production by taking the surplus value generated by the workers.
1: Which, of course, indicates that they have the authority to determine what the value of the work is and, you know, the whole... The, the whole
0: fucking thing yeah
1: yeah so those are basically the points at which he doesn't get the bigger picture um max what were you going to say i
2: cut you off no i'm i'm desperately trying to find this one quote and hope oh here it is um did did you give the quote the that is why in the english sewing thread trust he does not see the fusions of tw- of 12,300 persons with money into a single capitalist unit but 12,300 different capitalists I thought that was the most like cohes or I thought that was one of the most one of the most interesting things she said, where it's this idea that you are not individual you are no more individuals in a capitalist society than you would be in a socialist one. Your individuality, or your individuality is stripped away by your participation and ownership of one singular unit of capitalism. Precisely
0: You're you. absolutely right, sir. <laughs> like you are reduced to a role and that role being owner shareholder shareholder yeah
2: it hey, is horse shit
0: i um i was just struck with the fact that i had a just a shitload of examples um backing up uh the point of uh capitalism in the state about how um in parliamentarianism uh when the will of the people begins to reject its class characteristics. The state enforces those class characteristics over the will of the people. I had a shitload of examples and I forgot to bring any of them up. So when we, uh, before we wrap, I'm just going to r- r- rattle those out. You can rattle them now.
1: I just had like two more things to
0: wrap let's, up. Let's let's stay on topic here and then I will double back.
1: Okay. Well, the only other things I wanted to mention from this section, because as I said before, it's basically just nine pages of her calling him a fake socialist. Yeah. Uh, repeating that point she said earlier of you're viewing socialism from a capitalist standpoint. And I have the final thing that he complains about in terms of Marx and social theory. And then I have a great quote where she basically just calls him an apologist. And the last thing is, he complains that capital cannot be both a scientific study and attempt to prove a, determin- a predetermined thesis. And I'm just like, what scientific paper have you read that doesn't have a thesis or like the
0: whole, it's it's a hypothesis. It's literally the whole thing,
1: a hypothesis, just because he proves it in the paper doesn't mean it was predetermined. Yeah. He was looking at this from a historical standpoint and already had the sources he wanted to pull from when he wrote the paper, (laughs) Like, like my dude. And in total, she, uh gives him this sick burn where he says that she says that his theories belong not to a socialist but a former socialist he's a socialist apologist quote that is why the cooperative principle the meager decantation of socialism by which bernstein wishes to garnish capitalist economy appears as a concession made not to the socialist future of society but to bernstein's own socialist past fucking roasted. Okay. <laughs> That's all I had for economic development and socialism. Uh,
0: okay. Yes. Basically uh the bit about uh the yeah, the state basically becoming less democratic when class struggle is on the docket. We have first and foremost the the current use of the filibuster to shatter any kind of populist like left-wing populist movement. That's one example, but we also have the nature of the Senate, the fact that North and South Dakota have four senators while having the same amount of population as North and South Manhattan, the Supreme Court, you know, unelected uh, lawyers who serve for life uh, and the Electoral College, as well as the uh, current size of the House um, and the current size of the House has not. I, I did some research here too. The the House has not grown since 1910 and the House has grown like three or four times before that point. Oh, much more than three or four. The house used to regularly grow every decade. See, this is why I was so excited uh, to bring this up, because (laughs) I knew that you would know. Um, Yeah, the house has not grown in 111 years. Uh, The current ratio at its worst is actually Montana, uh, which has 1 million people for one house member, while uh, the average is like, I believe, 700,000 people per house member, uh, because we capped it at 425 uh, and if even if we increased it to uh, quote from uh, Pew Research, even if Congress decided to expand the size of the house, the large US population put some practical limits on how much the representation ratio could be lowered. If the house were to grow to as large as the Bundestag, for example, Uh, The German legislature, the ratio would fall to only one representative per four hundred and fifty eight thousand four hundred and twenty eight people in reference to uh, the ratio in order to reduce the ratio to where it was after the 1930 census. The House would need to have one thousand one hundred and fifty six members, which would still be smaller than China's National People's Congress, which has twenty nine hundred and eighty members.
2: For a bit of a fun fact here, I I'm trying to find the specific portion of the text that it's from. I think that this was it wasn't constitutional. It might have been one of the Federalist papers or something to that extent. But the original I the originally envisioned size of the House was one member for every thirty thousand Americans. In context, we are a country of three hundred million. million.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah three hundred and thirty million divided by 30,000, it would be 11,000 representatives in the House alone, which <laughs> I would argue is a bit too big, but hey, definitely. I yeah. um, for additional context, most states, state representatives and state senators represent uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 50 to 70,000 people individually. That's also, state rep, not state senator, sorry. For reference,
0: <laughs> uh, the entire country when the House of Representatives was first conjured into being, had a population of less than 4 million. Yep. So that's Portland, Oregon. Or no, I'm sorry, that's the state of Oregon now. Portland is 2 million. So the entire st- the state of Oregon was the entire country as far as population is concerned.
2: I should pipe in here to say, like, this is the the big issue with the American ideal of looking at our Constitution and our founding documents as being semi-religious documents and saying, wow, this, is, uh, this cannot be changed, it was deemed to us from God on high and his you know, many great thinkers, um, is that people decide that they should never change them. One of the ideals that I'd really like to see affected in governance um, is ways to structurally encourage a multi-party system, which can absolutely be done. Uh, it's just built around how you elect people Mm-hmm. Um, in, first past the
0: post elections are fucking stupid
2: oh 100% um, <laughs> big fan of proportional uh, district based systems um, I I have a few friends out in Colorado who have long talked with each other about uh, running a state constitutional amendment on the ballot to try and shift us towards a statewide elected legislature basically um, built on you know, party lists or whatever way works most effectively. But no, I mean, as to what you were saying earlier, the system is broken. It's, it's not broken because it was always broken. It's broken because we haven't fixed it in the last 50 to 100 years.
0: I would argue that the United States from its inception was fundamentally broken because it was kind of always designed to be an oligarchy.
1: I will say I agree a little bit. But I also, I mean, obviously they thought they were, I mean, for whatever twisted reasons, they probably thought they were doing something good. But I, you mentioned something I really wanted to talk about, Max, which was constitutional literacy. Like, um, And what was it? Con- literalism. That's what I meant. Constitutional literalism. And I think both you and Colin have said something similar, which is that, like, maybe Colin's saying it in the way that this was designed to be broken, and you're saying it in the way that, like, They had no concept for how big our country would get in the same way that we have no concept for like we were discussing on last episode, what a crisis would look like in a socialist society and how they would deal with that. Like people think that the founding fathers were these like mega brain disciples, basically, of holy law.
0: No, they were drunk as fuck. Like.
1: And arguably, they were as smooth-brained about the current state of our country as we are about what socialism might look like in the future in, like, a socialist utopia.
2: Foundationally, I tend to think about this and say that our founding fathers were game developers. Yeah. They were trying to build a system that they could anticipate and block exploits, And that's foundationally what they did because they looked at how do we have an executive that rules this country? We can't let the individual people decide because they can get carried away by populist intention. Um, We can't let the big states decide. Well, I mean, populist intention can be really fucking dangerous. Um, I want to say that openly. Like, genuinely, they're... If the will or if the ideals of the Constitution had been followed through on, Donald Trump never would have won the presidency in
0: 2016. I mean, we would have had a radically different country had the intentions of the Constitution been followed through on. Yeah, I I would argue even that like the, the founding fathers were largely the wealthiest and most educated men in the 13 colonies who were creating a system built around what is essentially early capitalism they were building a system where only people only landlords people who owned land could vote in the earliest drafts of our fucking country like it wasn't I mean, until uh, people who didn't it wasn't until the 1840s the the, the the right before jackson became president that people who didn't own land could vote
2: if i remember right and i should qualify that that is largely true there are always exceptions to that yeah, i, I yeah. think it was new jersey allowed any resident of the state to vote, uh, including women as early as the early constitutional conventions. But I know they also repealed that later on <laughs> for a uh, distaste of how the people were voting. I, I was just going to say that, like, I, I keep returning in my head back to Colin said that the system was never working. The system was always broken I, I think that there is some level to which we have to give credit to them for thinking of a system of self-rule because I don't think that was an experiment that had really been tried. Um, this was radical uh, this was a radical shift away from oligarchy when it was originally conceived of. I mean you're shifting away from mon- sorry, it was a radical shift away from monarchy towards yeah. more uh, popularized rule um, yeah which. Yeah. I would argue is akin to a shift away from oligarchy.
0: I would say it's a shift away from feudal oligarchy to a sort of mercantilist oligarchy.
2: Yeah. All that is to say, uh, (laughs) I mean, of course, that system no longer works today. Is there any other thing we've carried on from the The seventeen hundreds that that works, like (laughs) the cotton (laughs) gin? Yeah. I I think about this every time I talk with some of my older, more conservative relatives because they'll still discuss these ideas of like, yeah, but it's the checks and balances of Congress and the the legislative and the executive and the general. And that's all fine theory and philosophy, but the issue that we are facing is that those aren't the dividing lines of power. Power isn't divided by legislative, executive, judicial. It's divided along ideological and partisan lines. And the reason that we're seeing such extreme issues in our politics today is that We
0: haven't addressed that. (laughs) And our government wasn't designed to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In conclusion, (laughs) the system be broke
0: for one reason or another. And... Rosa Luxemburg at least recommends revolution. She do.
1: (laughs) And in the final episode of this series, we will go straight through to the end from the next chapter. It'll be
0: two episodes probably.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, but in our final recording session, God, Colin, uh, um, we'll finish out this text. I honestly don't know where she's going to go from here just because, like, she already dunked on him pretty hard. She she wrecks him. But thank you so much for listening to our coffee and nicotine-fueled
0: ramblings. Who have you been now?
1: Oh, I don't know. I'm just a small town lawyer with a chip on my shoulder. No, my name right, Atticus,
0: is Atticus. Cool off.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My name is Al Gropey. Uh, she, her, hers. You can find me at my website, com or at my Instagram, al.gros. Gross, not gross. I am very clean most of the time. And I'm very excited to finish out this reading. Colin, who the hell have
0: you been? I am Colin Orton. You can find me on Twitter at Colin Orton. You can find me on Instagram at the 13 colonies and you can find this podcast. at uh, Left us pod on Twitter and send us hate mail at getting informed pod at gmail.com. Max, um, who have I, you been?
2: I am Max. He, him is, uh, I think all my tags are at Max Strower. really couldn't tell you, but, uh, Colin will find them. <laughs> Dab on it It's thank been you so sick, much. y'all Thank you, thank you Have a great day